Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Christ Through Their Eyes, which was taught to help us celebrate Advent in 2021. Advent is a time to reflect upon the coming of Christ, which was revealed progressively to many people in the scripture. In this series, we consider several of these perspectives on Christ and his Advent. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. With that, Simeon is going to be stepping forward and uh, sharing the Word of God. For those who don't know, if they're uh, newer around here, Simeon actually, Simeon and his wife Shannon, uh, lead our uh, youth ministry each week. And uh, Simeon actually also serves on the church council and is in seminary right now and looking forward to what God's going to be doing in his life. So uh, he's taught a number of times, but he's going to be teaching us this morning on the seed of hope. All right, man. All right, as, as Brett said, I'm, I'm teaching today from the subject, A Seed of Hope. Um, and you can see that's a subtitle because this is a part of a series, uh, Christ Through Their Eyes. And Christ Through Their Eyes, that is to say, characters in the scripture, how they saw the coming of Christ. Um, so today I want to preach from the subject, A Seed of Hope, and look specifically at the characters Adam, Eve, and a mysterious creature. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 3, and as Brett has mentioned many times, I appreciate him mentioning for this, is this is the most important part of the message, is God's word as I read this. So we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes... And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave gave to be with me, she gave me fruit. She gave of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Excuses, excuses. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field on your belly you shall go. In dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall br- he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
To the woman, the Lord, he, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out, of the, out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It was Christmas Day 2007 when we were getting ready to hand out gifts. Uh, me and my family, we gathered. Um, in that particular year, I, I had a, really had a, a strong desire for, uh, for a certain gift. Um, and that gift was the, the new iPod Touch. I don't know if you got, I, can I call myself old because I, like that was, I don't know if I'm there yet. But it was the iPod Touch. Now, the iPhone had come out a little before this, but it wasn't as, as, as special to me. But most of it is just because I couldn't have a phone at that time. But the iPod Touch, that was like the gift that I really, really wanted for Christmas. And, you know, I would drop my hints and stuff like that, that I wanted this gift and things like it. Yeah, I really want that iPod Touch. I really need it to do my schoolwork. Uh, but that, that didn't fly with mom and dad. Um, but I, I, didn't get my, I didn't get my hopes up too high because we didn't usually get gifts like iPod Touches. But... There was a new member in our family, um, and my brother's girlfriend, she was kind of, you know, new to the family, and I would drop hints, and as I was dropping hints to her, I, I, I kind of looked over, and she would look at me mysteriously, and I'm like, man, I think she's going to give me that iPod Touch. Like, I really, I kind of felt it. I was like, this, that would be, like, really nice. And so we get there, Christmas Day, and she walks up to me and gives me a box, and I'm like, you, I really feel like she is giving me this iPod Touch. I open up the box, and there it was. So I thought, the iPod Touch. I opened up the box, looked like it, pulled it out, and the iPod Touch was an iPod Touch case. It was not the iPod Touch. I got the case that she gave me, you know, the kind that you put on your arm and everything like that when you're going to go work out. She bought me that for Christmas. And then she looked at yeah, it's, it's cruel. She looked at me and said, okay, so now when you get the iPod Touch, you'll have a case. <laughs> And uh, to this day, that is, in, uh, that is why Thanksgiving is a better uh, holiday than Christmas. <laughs> I'm, te I'm teasing. But it, isn't it something, in a more serious note, that when you really anticipate pleasure in getting something, that when you do not get that thing and you get pain instead, it, it becomes like a very miserable experience. And so everyone, just like you guys, everyone's sitting around laughing about, ah, that's the funniest little thing. Ah, she got you the iPod Touch case. That was good. Good job, Debbie. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't like her too much. But, 
It hurt, and I still can't, you know, can't accept it. But that's kind of what happens to a much greater de degree to Eve and Adam in this passage, is that they go to take the fruit from the tree, and they anticipate a lot of pleasure, but they end up getting pain. They usher in what uh, theologians call this, this original sin. They usher in sin into the world, which becomes the thing that causes death, pain, suffering, etc. But if you were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, the very first couple of verses that we see that God created this universe not with pain and suffering and sickness, but he created the universe and he created the world perfect. And he created the world good without death. And then in verse 26, we learn Genesis chapter 1, we learn that God, he, he creates the zenith, if you will, of his creation, which is mankind. It says that both man and woman he creates in his image, in his likeness. And that can mean many, many different things. I don't have time to talk about exactly what that means. But one implication is that man was called to reign and rule with God and to enjoy God in his creation. Uh, the Bay Ridge uh, Christian Catechism, the first question, I love the Christian Catechism. The first question says, why did God create humans? The answer is to enjoy him, to glorify him, excuse me, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so to glorify God and enjoy him forever, how was man supposed to do that after he created him in Genesis chapter 1? Well, Genesis chapter 2 comes along and God creates a garden. It's the Garden of Eden. And it's where God would dwell with man and walk with man uh, uh, hand in hand, if you will, so that man could enjoy who God is. Uh, Psalm chapter 16 tells us that the, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. There's fullness of joy in the presence of God. And so now man is able to complete his mission and he's able to work in the garden, but also enjoy God as he walks with God day by day. But there is one stipulation. Man is not to eat from one of the trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I'm not exactly sure why man's not allowed to eat from that particular tree. Different people speculate. But for me, I, I, it's, it's quite clear that there's one real strong reason, and that is God gives us commands so that we can commune with him. That obeying God's word is how we enjoy God. The second question in the Bay Ridge Christian Catechism, it asks the question, how, where do you learn how to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Like, where do you learn to do that? The answer, in his word, the Bible. So when God gives us a command, it is an invitation to obey that command so we can receive blessings from God. And so God gives them the command so that they would enjoy him. But, uh, you know, as I just read, that doesn't happen. They end up failing, and like I already mentioned, they usher in what they call this original sin, which brings pain and suffering in the world. And if you remember in the passage, it says that they were exiled, removed from the Garden of Eden, removed from the presence of God, and by implication, from joy. And just a quick little footnote, this is the beginning of mankind seeking pleasure in places outside of God's presence. This is the beginning of that. So when we see all the pain and the hurting and the sorrow in our world, we see people hurting and self-sabotaging. We don't have to worry, wonder, where does that come from? Why are people so wicked? Why is there so much evil in this world? Well, we can go back to Genesis chapter 3, and we have it right here. It is because we, not God, we 
have failed to obey him. And because of that, death is what happens. But, okay, that's, we, have the, we have the original sin. That's the, that's the first thing we kind of notice in this passage. But we also notice something new to the scriptures in Genesis chapter 3, and that is this mysterious creature, this, this serpent, if you will. Let's, uh, let's look back at verse 1 and see what we can learn about this serpent. It says, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. So the very first thing that we see is that the serpent is crafty, meaning he is wise, he has wisdom, and that he's a beast of the field. In other words, God created this serpent. It's not, it's, the serpent's not good or bad. The serpent seems to be neutral. However, it doesn't take long before we look at the passage and it's like, okay, but something's up with this guy because he, he seems to be a bit evil. You can clearly see that he's opposing God. So is he being influenced by something else? Clearly, he's not a neutral being. So let's go on and look at the dialogue here. The serpent goes to the woman. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the, of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I didn't read it back in Genesis chapter 2. That's not what God says. God says, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, and you will die if you do. She didn't even say nothing about touch it. She didn't say anything like that. So what's happening here? Notice the word actually. Notice that word Actually, it's kind, of, it's kind of like the child that says, did mom actually say I can't have a cookie? Like, can I, can I, can I is, like, like, is that what mom, she really said that? Think about it. What, what is happening here? For the serpent to say, did God actually say, is for the serpent to suggest that God's word does not mean what it actually says. He is questioning and challenging the integrity of God. He's challenging the integrity of God. And, you know, as, as a youth pastor, I've been doing youth ministry almost six years now as, as a collective. And people will ask, uh, often ask me, you know, why, why do you think that, 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 that high schoolers and, and even college students, when they, leave the, when they leave the high school or college, why do they leave the church? So, I mean, why do you think that is? I think there's many different reasons. But I think one of the big reasons is, is that high schoolers... Well, even before that, we tend to just trust our parents. We tend to take them at their word. What they tell us is true. God is good. God is good. I, I, I receive that. But when they enter into the world, we are bombarded with a culture that forces you to think for yourself. And that same culture gets you to question God by asking questions like, did God actually say marriage is between a man and a woman? Like, did, did God actually say you have to go to church? Did God actually say? Hmm. And when we question the goodness and the sovereignty of God's word, we allow for the seed of doubt to take up residence in our lives. And that's exactly what's happening here. Did God actually say that you will die? Like, did God really say that? So what's happening now is Eve, all of a sudden, she allows this seed of doubt to come into her heart. And the devil's goal is that it would germinate into this rebellion. So when we question it, that's when we end up getting in trouble. Look at the next verse. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So notice here the passage. Notice that the serpent, he takes, he takes the, 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 the seed that's in the ground of doubt and he pours the water of lying and it, become, it comes out and she gets deceived. She lies. He says, God didn't say that. You're, you're not going to die if you eat of the fruit. But again, I didn't read it, but in Genesis chapter 2, God goes to Adam and says, you're going to die if you eat the fruit. So here, here's a quick little, little note for us. Is that the things that you allow or we allow to get us to question God's goodness and his sovereignty, it is that thing that we enable to have authority in our lives. So that's what happens here. She allows the serpent to question God's integrity, and she bites, and she gives in to that. And as soon as she does that, she gives power to the serpent. And now the serpent has the ability to say, huh, let's change the word of God now. You're not going to die. So now the serpent's word is greater than God's word. It's what we see with our culture. When we allow it to, to, to question God's goodness and God's sovereignty, we give it the power to tell us what is true and what is not. And he just completely lies. And then he goes on and he says, he says that, that you will be like God. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. Like God, like God, like God. If, 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 if you've been a member at Bay Ridge for some time, or if you've just been listening to this sermon, I don't know if you're listening, uh, the, the phrase like should sound pretty familiar. We just saw it. In, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Let us make man in our image after our, what does it say? Likeness. After our likeness. So, so, so man is created in the image of God after his likeness. And the devil's lie is, wait a second, you're not going to die, but not only that, but if you eat of the tree, you're actually going to be like God. But the fact is, they already were like God. They were already like God. So why did she need to be more of God? Why? Why? Because that's, again, what the serpent does, is he deceives you. He gets your eyes off of not only who you are, but he gets your eyes off of what you have. And God said, I've created you valuable in my image, in my likeness, and then we still want to be more like God. We reject what we have, and then we move and try and be God. Again, is in, in you know I work in the school systems and it's uh, it's a challenge, it's a real challenge. But when I see people confused about who they are and what they have and trying to switch things up so that they can find significance or find value in that, it goes back to Genesis chapter three. It's the original deception. That here the serpent's goal and the serpent's aim, if you can hear this, the serpent's goal and the serpent's aim is to destroy the image of God by and through deception. That's his goal. If I can destroy the image of God by deception, then I've won. 
Who is the image of God? We are. We've been talking about it. We are humans. We are the image of God. So if I can destroy the image of God, then I will have my value. Because we'll see here in a second, the serpent is just mad because he can't be like God. <laughs> but this does make us wonder. It does make us wonder, who is this serpent? Like I said, like, he's a little mysterious, but come on. This dude is evil. But as we look to the New Testament, and here's just a quick little as a, a, a how to read scripture, and Brett has told us this as well, that when you're reading in the New Testament and you see a clear reference to Old Testament passages, you need to take those references, you need to take those words of the New Testament authors as authority and authoritative commentary on the Old Testament passage. They will expound the truths of the Old Testament. And so look here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the, war, the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. <laughs> it's pretty clear at that point. I mean, th this prophecy that John is giving us, he's making it very obvious that the serpent found in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan, this great deceiver, the enemy of God, the one who opposes God, complete rebellion. And so he gives us the identity. So now that we have the identity of the serpent, let's look at this key verse in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15. This is the verse that we're going to conclude with, and we'll look at a couple insights from this, and then end there. This is God speaking back to the serpent. I will put enmity, which means warfare, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Now, the word offspring here, I, I, called the, I titled the teaching a seed of hope. The word offspring is the same word seed. It's the same word seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I was... Uh, during a pastor's meeting with Brett and, and Linda and Shannon, we were all there this weekend, or this week, I think it was Wednesday, and we were there, and a speaker, and I believe he used to come to this church, uh, Philip, he was there, and he, he was giving us a, a great lesson on marriage, and it was, it was a fantastic uh, message. But he began by talking about this concept of biblical theology, biblical theology, and he explained that what biblical theology is, is that there are different topics in the scriptures that they can, that, 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 that start really small, and then they get expounded on throughout the scriptures, and they find their consummation in Christ, certain topics like marriage, different topics, here we're talking about the gospel, <laughs> just the topic of the gospel, and he also used an analogy to help us understand what is this biblical theology, a topic that starts here and ends there, it's kind of like a tree, that a tree starts as a seed in the ground, and then it grows up into this, this sprout, and then into a sapling, and finally a full-blown tree. And so as we look at this passage here, theologians, they call this the, 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 the first gospel, like Brett said this morning. It is the first gospel that we are given right here in this passage. It's where we're given the gospel of Jesus Christ in seed form in the ground. Just keep that in mind as we look at these couple insights. Here's the, here's the first one. In the midst of a curse, God reveals his blessing. Mm 
that it is in the midst of the curse. As God's cur- he's giving a curse to the serpent. He's giving a curse to the woman. He's giving a curse to the man. And it's in the midst of that that we, give a gl- we get a glimpse of hope. We have a promise while they're receiving their pain. Now, now let's, let's break this down just a little bit. To look at w- what this is, is we first have to understand, what is the offspring here in, these, in this passage? What are the two, what are the offsprings? Because clearly there's a warfare going on. There's enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve, or the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. Well, we just explained that the serpent is the one that is completely against God. It is Satan, the one that rebels against God completely. So a seed or an offspring is another, a synonymous word for that is a child or a descendant, someone that comes from the lineage of that. So what's the offspring of the serpent? Well, it's those who come from his line that live in complete rebellion against God. It's what Jesus would say in John. It's who Jesus would say, you are the sons of the devil. Now, that's, that's a pretty harsh term, but Jesus is making a point. Or, or what, who Paul, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, he would say that these are the sons of disobedience. It's those who come into this world and live in complete rejection, disobedience to God, the offspring of the serpent. Now, who's the offspring or the seed of Eve? Well, it's the complete opposite. It's the complete opposite. Those who live in complete obedience to God. The complete opposite is because there's a war here, okay? Those who are living in complete rebellion versus those who live in complete obedience. And if we were to continue to read the story, Genesis chapter 3, it's the very beginning of the Bible, but if we went from Genesis chapter 4 and we keep reading all the way up to Genesis chapter 11, we see some real dark stuff happening. We see, kind of, we see Cain versus Abel, and you kind of see this warfare already happening, that there's this disobedience versus obedience happening, and one kills the other, and it just gets really bad. But it spirals all the way down in Genesis chapter 11 to the point where God's just like, look, all of mankind resembles the offspring of Satan instead of the offspring of seed. In other words, everybody's disobedient. God tried to wipe it out with a flood, brought it back up with Noah, and then it goes down and spirals down. No one is found righteous. Nobody is found obedient to God. The offspring of the serpent seems to be winning. But Genesis chapter 12, this is where we find a very essential character in the Bible, and his name is Abram. We find him that God calls Abram as a particular person, and he wants Abram to, 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 to follow after him and walk in righteousness after God. And so you can see God pulling from the serpent or the seed of the serpent and saying, I want to have this one man for me so that I can start something different. I want to keep this war going so I can win the war. God pulls Abram out and says, you are going to be my person. And he says this, that you're going to be my reward, Abram. But not only that, but you're going to be the one who perpetuates a generation of obedient people so that the rest of the world can eventually come back into this obedience with me. And he says in Genesis chapter 15 to Abram, he says that your seed, your seed is the one that's going to take the promise of being my people. 
Oh, so it's a beautiful thing. We have Abram, and he has his children. He has Isaac, he has Jacob, and he keeps going, and you have what we know in the Old Testament as the Israelite people. The seed of Eve is starting to emerge, and so you kind of see the promises in Genesis chapter 3 being a seed in the ground. You can start to now see it's more like a little sprout. You're like, oh, okay, so maybe the seed of Eve is, are these Israelite people. Problem with that is, did they obey or did they disobey? <laughs> yeah, they disobeyed pretty hard. They, they, they had some good days and they had some bad days. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? But they ultimately, they lived in complete disobedience to God to the point that when we get to Judges, the book of Judges, at the very end of Judges, it says that none of them followed after the Lord and they followed after their own way. They, they were pulled out from the seed of the serpent and they were called to be the seed of Eve and they did not obey what God called them to obey and they end up failing. Hmm, misery. However... God goes back to his people and he says, well, I'm going to get this right with you guys. And I'm going to bring out a king so that you guys can walk in obedience to me. And so he brings out Saul and Saul fails. But he calls David to be this king who would lead his people in obedience. And in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, one of the essential, most key chapters in the whole scripture to understand scripture, you've got to know 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 records a dialogue between God and uh, King David. And he goes, God goes to King David and he says, I'm going to have your seed, David. There's that word again, seed. I'm going to have your seed sit on your throne forever. And you and that seed, they will cause the world to walk in in obedience and so as we saw the seed in genesis chapter 3 go to a now a sprout with abram and his people and as they disobeyed also we're starting to get a little more insight and we're starting to see that sprout go more into what we would know as like more of a sapling and it grows up a little bit and now we know that it's not a, a generation of people that is the seed of eve but now we can start to see that it's one person that's going to come from the line of david and he is going to be the king of the Israelite people. And that sapling, I'm not going to continue too deep into that, but that sapling, it, it grows and it grows in the Old Testament. We're given more prophecies and more prophecies. And then all of a sudden, when we come to the New Testament, we begin to learn that the identity of that king that comes from the line of David and also from the line of Abram, we begin to see that, wait a second, this guy is Jesus Christ. And not only is he a man that comes from the line of David, but he is, a God, he is God that comes from the line of David. And he is the virgin, like we sang in the songs. He is the virgin. He comes from the virgin's womb, who is God, and he is also man. And he sits on the throne for eternity. So that's what we have. We have the seed of the serpent, the sons of disobedience, versus the seed of of Eve, who we can identify in the New Testament as Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the second point, which is the enemy's attack leads to the enemy's defeat. The enemy's attack leads to the enemy's defeat. Again, it says that the enemy here, he he will, his seed will bruise or wound the heel of the seed of Eve. And the seed of Eve will actually bruise and wound his head. So what we have in our passages, we see in this Genesis chapter 3, we see that there will be a warfare going on between the two. And they both will cause fatal wounds, and they will hurt each other very, very bad. And if you think about it, Jesus was wounded. But he wasn't punched in the face. Like, it wasn't a soft wound. 
It was a fatal wound. And he was wounded by being killed and crushed on a cross. By who? The seed of the serpent. Who is the seed of the serpent? Those who walk in disobedience. The seed of the serpent, those who crucified Jesus, placed him up on the cross and wounded him. And a fatal wound, last time I checked, like that, that, that means you're going to die. <laughs> like, like a fatal wound, like you're, you're dead. And Jesus, he goes down into the grave. And it looks like all hope is lost. And you have to really picture that because we know the end of the story. It's like, yeah, but he comes back. But it looked like all hope was lost. It looked like the seed of the serpent won. It looked like he had crushed him completely. And he goes down into the grave. This one king from the line of David who was supposed to sit on the throne forever is killed. Crucified. However, on the third day, on the third day, he rises back up. Because the scripture tells us because he is God, because the Holy Spirit dwelt on him, he was not able to be held down in the grave. And so when the serpent slashed him, he was not able to be held down. He comes back up and he reigns and he sits on the throne at the right hand of the father and he reigns for eternity until it tells us that all of the enemies of God are crushed. And so it's just a beautiful reality that when the enemy comes to attack, when he comes to attack us, it's actually his defeat. It's going to be his defeat. And now look at this. We have a lot of enemies in our life. And Brett taught, taught about a month ago about they're, they're the invisible enemies in our lives. They're, they're the invisible. Hey, Brett, you said something so amazing. You said that if you can see the person, that is not the enemy. The Bible tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So the issues that we go through in life, man, I lost my job. Man, she broke up with me. Man, I can't get paid the bills. The issues that we go through in life. Ah, they're talking bad about me again in my workplace. The issues that we go through in life, it is not caused by a person. It's an invisible warfare that is happening in our lives. And there was an invisible warfare that was happening in the life of Christ. And you remember in Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, he was tempted. Satan comes to him and straight up, he, he, he duels him. I mean, he's fighting him. But Jesus wins that war. It was visible to him, but it's invisible to us. And when we see him win the war, we, it should encourage us. Because we know that no matter how bad it gets in life, our hope is in his second coming. Our hope is in the reality that he's already won. That is our hope and that is our joy. How do we get back into the Garden of Eden where the cherubim is standing? Well, we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And when we place our faith in him, he wins the battle for us. But not only does he win the battle for us, he becomes our hope. He becomes our peace. He becomes our joy. He becomes our love. That no matter what we do in life, we're constantly seeking after pleasures. And we're seeking after things that can make us feel human. And we're seeking after things that give us life and give us purpose. But I'm here to tell you today that that life, that purpose, that joy, that peace it is found in the victory that Jesus caused for us and when the devil went to defeat him he actually found his own defeat so how can we apply it two questions that I'll ask here's the uh, here's the first question when I look at the pleasures of this world 
do I recognize Christ as true joy? Do I recognize him as true joy? Something happened in the passage. That as soon as they ate from the tree, what did they do? They recognized they were naked. And they found loincloths and they ran. What's happening? They take their eyes off of the divinity of God. And they place it on their own humanity. And their own frailty. And they realize and recognize they aren't him. They realize, like, I'm not him. Because they see who they are. But we were never meant to be God. We were meant to enjoy God. The greatest thing in the universe is God. If I were to give you the greatest gift, if I were to give myself the greatest gift, that iPod touch, as much joy as it can bring. And so, I mean, it can bring some, some pretty solid temporal joy. I can tell you there's some things out there for Christmas that I would like to have that will bring me some joy. Ooh, yes, Lord. But if I were to get all of those things, it would bring temporal joy. But if you could give me the thing that brings real joy, if you could give me that, tell me where to sign up. Tell me where to sign up. There's something about it. There's something in me, just like a fish out of water. I, I, am, I am made for joy. Like I'm made for it. Something in me is like, I want to be happy. <laughs> I want to be happy. Like I'm the kind of guy, like I, I build systems in my life to avoid misery and pain. Like I don't like pain. I don't like hurt things that hurt me. I don't like things that keep me from happiness. I really just don't, like straight up. Now, I got a wife to testify for that now. But if you can give me something that just gives me joy, and I'm here to tell you, it's not your job. It's not the government. It's not the temporal things that can be good, but it's not those things. It is Jesus Christ. He is what brings happiness. Placing your faith in him and your hope in him is what brings happiness in your life. It's what brings joy. Why were humans created? Humans were created to glorify God, make much of God, to magnify God, to see him as great, to see him as beautiful, to see him as fantastic. Humans were created for that, to do that, and then to enjoy him. It's not a separate thing. As we sing here and we worship and we praise and we hear the word and we yes and we amen it. All we're doing is glorifying God. We're making much of him and we're receiving joy. If you're new to that, if you're new to church and it's like, man, why are they all screaming and why are they doing all that kind of stuff? That's fine. Like, I get it. If I walked in for the first time and I didn't know Jesus, that would be weird. But that's because we want to make much of our God. It's because when we go out of these doors and we see the pain and we see the suffering and we see the hurt and we see the sickness and we see the death and all these different things in our life, when we see that, we need a hope. And it, like I said, it can't be the government. It can't be my parents. It can't be my education. It cannot be my job. Because what happens when I lose those things? What happens when I take those things and they are taken away from me? What happens? Then what I place my trust in must be Jesus. So when I look at the pleasures of this world, do I recognize Christ as true joy? When I see the apple when, or whatever, whatever type of fruit it is, when I see that fruit and there's a temptation to grab, do I recognize his divinity or do I see that? Got to get our eyes to Jesus. We got to get our eyes to Jesus. Here's the second and final question. 
when everything seems wrong, when everything seems to go wrong, am I aware that God is working it for the good of me and his church? Now, again, that's a real simple question. Am I aware that he, yeah, I'm aware of it. Are you? Are we? Will we hear as much complaining if we were? Will we pull our hair out as much if we were? That when bad steps into our life, when heartache steps into our life, do we see that as God working it for good? Because if we did, this is what Paul tells us we would do in Romans chapter 5. He says then we would rejoice. We would rejoice in suffering. Whew, that's tough. That's a challenge for me. We would rejoice. I just told you I built systems to avoid pain. So when we get pain in this world, do we see that as an opportunity to praise? If we don't, we need to get our eyes to him. Guys, the, 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 I, I just, I love that I got to teach this because it's so, it's just the gospel. That's all it is. It's nothing, anything, no fancy, nothing like that. It's just, it's just the gospel. And during this Advent season, we've got to become families and individuals that get our eyes back to Christ. Amen. We've got to do that. Amen. And that takes real, real focus. It takes, it takes the ability to tune out what I hear. It takes shutting off the YouTube or shutting off the news. It takes shutting off the game for a minute. Just a minute. It takes shutting it down. <laughs> Jeez, I need Jesus. Um, <laughs> But it means shutting those things down and placing our eyes back on him. And that is my hope today. My hope really is that the church, and, and again, I told you that I work at the, in the school systems, that the church would be this beacon of light, that, that reasonableness <laughs> would be here, that joy would be here, that hospitality would be here, that love would be found here, so that when the broken world understands that it's broken, it would find a place to be healed. It would find a place to be healed. So with that being said, we're going to go to the table if you have your packages. And if you're, if you're not a believer, um, I would just ask that you, let the, you do not partake. Because this is something that we are proclaiming from the depths of our heart. It says this. For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when, he had, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he took this cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we recognize the bread to be food that nourishes our physical bodies. But in you, Jesus, we have been given the bread of life, which nourishes our body and our soul. We take this bread in faith, believing that Jesus alone is our salvation, knowing that you are more precious than life itself. Looking forward to your second coming when we will eat with you face to face. Brothers and sisters, eat the bread. Lord, you have created us to experience joy. 
And we recognize that the gift of wine is given that we may be filled with joy. But in Jesus Christ, we have been given true joy, which is represented in the drinking of this cup. We take this cup in faith, believing that the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin, yes, knowing that it has sealed us as your covenant people, which is better than all the joys this world can offer. Yes, Looking forward to your second coming when we drink the cup from your hand. Take and drink. You can stand with me as we pray. Before we pray, I, I, want, I want to mention that as amazing as the reality of Jesus being the seed of being for us is, that when we place our hope and our faith in him, we now are co-heirs with him. It's a beautiful thing that the fight that he overcame for us is now our victory something to celebrate, something to be encouraged with. Holy Spirit, we are thankful for you as you have regenerated our souls to walk in obedience as Adam and Eve walked with you before the fall. Empower us today to go forth with power. Strengthen us today in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us during this Advent season that you are the king of this world whereby the enemy will receive his final defeat. May we be given the courage to take, to, take it to, be, to take it to the world. Bless us, O God, with true joy. Bless us with peace that surpasses all understanding. Come upon us today in power and love, teaching us that all the bad we see will be reworked for our good. Encourage us, your people, that we may walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now for uh, an unusual benediction, but it'll make sense. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I uh, just want to let you know that there is no greater blessing than being in the, the, the family of Christ. So go blessed to be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.